Thanks very much, Megan. It's a pleasure to be online with you. Um, so first of all, I'd just like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the Macquarie University land, where I'm talking from today. So that's the Watamatagal clan of the Darug Nation. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and future. So in this uh, talk today, I'd like to just really give you an overview of the different approaches that I've been taking to understand more about Australia's volcanic past and potentially future activity. So we're going to really um, highlight three stories, three current studies that are underway. So a lot of this work is in progress. It's not published yet. So I'll try and share what I can without giving too much away. Um, hoping we would have been a bit further along with some of these, but obviously the last three months have thrown a spanner in, in it in the progress in a number of ways. And the main question really I want to ask from this talk is, should we really be doing more to prepare for a volcanic eruption, either within Australia or from outside Australia? So I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of Australia, but these are the things that came to my mind before moving here from the UK in 2007. Kangaroos, koalas, beaches, ice creams, and, and lots of spiders. Um, from chatting to people, I guess, around on the street, mums, you know, people that I meet, you know, most people are unaware of Australia's rich uh, volcanic history and how relatively young, geologically speaking, that is. So I spent, I guess, the, my first 10 years in Australia working on uh, Indonesia, on, in Vanuatu, on volcanoes there, and then I moved. So after having children, I probably had to move a bit closer to home for field work and things. So I started working in New Zealand on subduction plate, uh, subduction zone uh, volcanoes. So the same stuff I kind of been doing in Indonesia and, and Vanuatu. And then I got interested in the in the intraplate. So I'm going to show a slide anyway to explain the difference between, I guess, subduction zone and intraplate volcanoes in a second. But it wasn't, yeah, until maybe two years ago. So I guess, yeah, about this time, two years ago, that I really started to get an interest in Australia's history, volcanic history um, and volcanic heritage too. So um, it's a re relatively new area for me, but I'm absolutely hooked and I think it's fascinating. So I'd like to share some of that with you today. So Active volcanoes. So one thing that we'll go in today is about whether, you know, how we classify things as active or not. Um, there's no doubt Australia does have active volcanoes, but we have to move off the mainland um, to go and see them. So these are down the Heard of MacDonald Islands down in the southern Indian Ocean. So you can see Antarctica down the bottom there. Here's Australia. Um, and these are UNESCO <coughs> World Heritage State Status Islands. So for their, I guess, their biodiversity, their, I guess, pristine nature and untouched uh, landscapes. But these are the, you know, if you're thinking of active, that most people probably would attribute to active volcanoes, these, these are the ones. So these are Australia's active volcanoes, a long way from the mainland. So the last eruption on Heard Island was around um, a period between 2012 to 2019, and McDonald Islands. So um, McDonald Island recently became active again after they think about 75,000 years of dormancy. So then it started um, erupting again. And now the last one was witnessed by a, a CSIRO, um, I guess, boat or ship that was, that was doing some research down the area. So they saw an eruption observed in 2016. And the problem with really knowing how active these are is obviously that it's quite hard to monitor because it's not somewhere near where anybody's going very frequently. So in terms of plate tectonics, so we often associate volcanoes with plate boundaries, whether these are divergent, so pulling apart like the mid-ocean ridges here, 
or whether these are convergent, so they're coming together and into these subduction zones, like, like such as we find around the Ring of Fire. And you can see here that Australia sits within the in the middle of a plate, so it's in an intraplate setting. Um, and there aren't that many uh, red triangles. We have got one down here, which signifies the newer volcanic province, um, but few few volcanic volcanoes highlighted here, and we're in an intraplate setting. So it's not really, I guess, any surprise that we'd not expect the public to be um, um, not really concerned about volcanoes in Australia. So in terms of the out outline of the talk today, so first of all, just, just to highlight, um, I guess the classification of what, whether something's active or not really plays a role here. And we can see that there's a lot of confusion even within the scientific community of whether or not Australia is, the mainland of Australia is volcanically active or not. Um, after that, I'm gonna then have a look at some indigenous knowledge of past eruptions that have occurred in Australia. And these are with collaborators, um, Caro and Patrick. And I just started um, a connection with Lee Franks, who's online today. So he's working on the Gagubadan of the Kinrara um, eruption in, in northeast Queensland and oral traditions in that area. Then we're going to look at some scientific insight into activity in, the, in Australia, volcanic activity in Australia, so with some current collaborations and projects that are, that are underway with people highlighted. And then also started up uh, last year a study looking at the, the public's perception of volcanic hazard and risks uh, with international and, and national collaborators. So I'm going to highlight some of the early results from that study as well. And then a kind of a what next and, and what should we do from here. So intraplate volcanism is far from a plate boundary. And we can see that Australia, this is the east coast here of Australia, and all these different coloured highlighted, I guess, blobs are, are volcanoes or volcanic fields that stretch over 4,000 kilometres down the east coast of the continent. Um, the yellow ones that you see, these are what we call the central shield volcanoes, and there is thought to be a, a progression in age, so they get younger towards the south. So this one is thought to be related to um, more of a hotspot type Hawaiian style volcanism. So where you might have this anomalously hot mantle or this upwelling of, of mantle over that's, that then you have a moving plate. And as that plate moves, you know, the plate, so as Australia plate moves to the north, then the volcanoes are going to get younger to the south. So that's why um, I guess what's been attributed to some of these seamount chains that we get. And then there's maybe at least, well, I think we're up to three now, three potential hotspot trails across, um, across Australia down the east coast. So this is really today I'm focusing on uh, volcanoes that have erupted in the Cenozoic, so in the last 66 million years. But more, more so than that, I'd really like to focus on those areas that look like they've got the youngest volcanoes and may be potentially active in the future. So these then are the red areas here. So these are our lava fields. So I'll show on there, I think on the next slide or two, what lava fields um, might look like in terms of where the volcanoes are and, and how they're spatially arranged. Um, but one of the youngest ones in Australia, so where the most recent eruptions are, are down here in, actually down here in South Australia, so at Mount Gambier and Mount Shank. And they were thought to have erupted about 5,000 5, years ago. So rel relatively recent. So this is what one of these fields looked like. So this is the new volcanic province that was in that blue circle on the last, on the last slide. And you can see that every one of these dots on here is a volcanic center. And there are over 400 known centers in this field. 
that have been active since the last four and a half million years to 5,000 years ago. And this actually is one of the largest volcanic fields um, that we have on the, on the continents of the earth and it, and it occupies over 23,000 kilometers. So it's, we're really lucky to have this on, on our doorstep, so to speak. Um, and there are a lot of, I guess, um, differences in the lithosphere, so in the, in the crust and apple mantle structure beneath here, and in the presence and not of aquifers that affect the kind of volcanic landforms that you get. So each of these different colored dots is a different style um, of volcanism, of, of eruption processes, and of landforms that cre get created through those. And then if we look up to northeast Queensland, there's also an area up here that we see these young volcanoes. And that's why, you know, it's often thought that it doesn't relate to this kind of hotspot trail that, that the other ones are related to, because we actually get the youngest volcanoes on the continent in the northeast of Queensland and in the in southeast Australia. Um, and you can see from some of these, these uh, images around of these two areas, we've got some really spectacular volcanic landscapes um, in this area. So the focus of, I guess, my interest coming from working in places that are extremely active um, is more so on these areas in northeast Queensland. Um, so there's the Atherton or McBride province and also down in uh, Victoria in the newer volcanic province in South Australia. So I'll show highlight some of the studies in these areas that we're working on at the moment. So active or, or not. So I guess there's no wonder we can't expect the public to, to uh, I guess, make an informed decision on this because as a geoscientist or as a number of geoscientists in the media, we're giving them, I guess, a real range of, of uh, comments about whether or not there could be activity in Australia. So I just wanted to highlight here, this is five quotes from five different academics from around the country that are talking about activity in Australia that have, that have been in the media, so in newspaper articles. And it was actually a Daily Mail article, um, that's, I read this for the first time in there, that captured these and put them together. And just to show the, the conflicts in opinion that we have as geoscientists on the active status of Australia. So um, first one, there's a possibility of an eruption, but it's low risk. And the next one was someone from ANU. So an eruption could hit Melbourne at any moment. In terms of Melbourne and Auckland, there's every chance another volcano could blow. You could see lava flowing down Burke Street. And the next one from Sydney Uni said, um, and I've obviously not given any names because I didn't want to embarrass anybody, but the next one from Sydney Uni said, there are no active volcanoes on the Australian continent. However, if you're a time traveler and land in Australia in 5,000 years, you better watch out. Um, someone from Utah said, Melbourne locals should prepare for potential disaster. From what we can establish now, we're in a long phase of dormancy and that there is the possibility of an eruption in this province. And then also from Macquarie, um, another colleague, actually this one was me, um, there is a lot more work that Australia should be doing to prepare for a future eruption. So you can see the range of perspectives that, that experts, scientific experts or geoscientists in Australia are providing to the public. So it's very confusing. And I think this mostly comes around from actually what is defining what is active. So, you know, if you're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go get some advice, where would I get it? You know, you're probably going to end up at Geoscience Australia if you want to know about volcanoes in, in, in Australia. So I went to the website to find out what Geoscience Australia had to say, and they say that mainland Australia currently has no active volcanoes. So again, I think this just comes down to how, you know, what do we mean by active and how do we define it? And I think we're probably going to have to be a little bit clearer as a community um, so that we're not confusing the public on this. 
So what does active mean? So I think you could all agree that this top picture here of, of, um, of Yasser in Vanuatu erupting is active. And there are probably about 20 now, right now, globally, that we could say are actively erupting. But it all comes down to, I guess, the relative time scale. So because volcanoes have long, can have, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years of dormancy, what we consider active to be um, should not just match, you know, I guess, um, human memory or historic uh, time scale in that sense. So um, I guess the Global Volcanism Programme and, and I guess most volcanologists that I know, we regard that if there's been an eruption in the last 10,000 years and there is potential for a future eruption in that area, um, then, then we class it as active. So it's a kind of a bit looser um, definition in that sense than something that we can actually see as either kicking off steam or um, a lava flow at present time. But it also comes down to what you define as a volcano. And this is what I think is really specific to Australia. So each, so I've copied this, I guess, new volcanic map of distribution map of volcanic centers in, in the new volcanic province down here again. And what you can, if somebody asked me if, if Mount Gambia was active, I'd say no, it was extinct. If somebody asked me if Mount Elephant was active, I'd say no, it's extinct. So actually all of these volcanoes in this area, I would classify as extinct. I would not expect them to erupt again, but it's the whole field as a whole that I would consider to be active. So there's obviously a lot of confusion too about whether you, when you, and I find this talking to the media is, you know, trying to tell them that it's not that volcano that's active, but it's the actual region that could potentially see an eruption. And the chance of it being in the same place is probably quite small. So yeah, it really de defines whether you're talking about an individual vent, you know, an actual edifice or complex or wider on, on a field and what time scale. But I think it's something that we should as a community make a bit clearer to the public overall. So indigenous knowledge. So I guess European arrival in Australia has just been a matter of hundreds of years. But before that, um, we know what we think at least for 65,000 years before that, there's been human occupation of Australia. And some of the young volcanoes that we have have definitely erupted within that time scale. So there's a really strong possibility that um, humans in Australia have witnessed volcanic eruptions in Australia um, over the time scale of activity of the more recent eruptions. So we, we know for a fact that Australian uh, Indigenous Australians have witnessed volcanic eruptions and one piece of evidence for that is Tower Hill which is this mar volcano and cone complex in the new volcanic province down here. They found a, a human axe buried underneath the volcanic ash of the volcano that volcano has been dated to about 37,000 years old. So I think Erin um, Matchin and others at Melbourne have just recently confirmed um, that date with some new ages that they've produced from Argon-Argon dating. So we can say that, yes, there were definitely humans um, living in Australia around 37,000 years ago in the Victorian region and that were, would have witnessed um, at least Tower Hill, Tower Hill erupting. The other clues that we get um, are in the name places. So many of the volcanoes or the, um, I guess those kind of topographic landforms or the Mar volcanoes um, for at least the scoria cones have names that refer to them as hills of fire or places of heat. So there's a knowledge there that, I mean, at present day, you know, you go to these areas, you don't, you know, nothing's glowing, there's no, nothing hot. Um, so there's obviously a memory there, or at least an interpretation or an ap application of other knowledge to these areas that 
um, they recognize them as volcanoes and that's probably from witnessing volcanic er eruptions. And then we have a large number of oral traditions. So in pre-literate times, oral traditions were the way to pass on knowledge to future generations to either protect, um, I guess, um, pass on knowledge in terms of creation or in terms of warning of, of areas or, or, or just um, advice for how to, um, I guess, a reaction with the landscape. So in terms of the oral traditions, I just wanted to highlight a couple. And there's a lot of being, work being done on this. I think there's been quite an interesting recent time. And I know Ben Wilkie's just got a new paper out on oral traditions in the New Volcanic Province that's come out in JBGR, it's in press at the moment. Um, and Lee Franks, who's online, is also working in, in the Conrara flow, which you can see up here. Um, and, and then I've been working with Carol and Patrick on, on, I guess, a wider Australasia study, but very much focused on oral traditions of volcanic eruptions in Australia. So, from, I guess you see, I guess one thing that bothers me is we often see a lot of things that say, oh, scientific knowledge is confirming um, oral traditions. And I don't, that's obviously clearly not, not the way that we should be thinking or talking about this. But what we should be thinking about, I feel, is that integrating Western scientific knowledge, which obviously comes from uh, a different um, history of process of thinking, um, integrate that knowledge with indigenous knowledge. And from that, we can really advance our understanding of um, volcanic activity and whether that's pre-eruption, what was going on pre-eruption, eruption hazards, or relative timing of eruptions. And the one, the one, I guess for Australia, it becomes really important because we've had such isolation for th tens of thousands of years. And because our volcanic activity is so sporadic in, in time and space, that you know, th we really need to learn as much as we can about how eruptions have occurred here in the past. And the best way of that is to try and get information from people that may have, may have witnessed that in the past or had their interpretations and passed them on to future generations. So one, one of the oral traditions concerns um, three volcanic centres in, <clears throat> in the South Australian part of the new volcanic province. So Mount Muirhead, uh, Mount Shank, and Mount Gambia. And this was the Wandik people of South Australia that had a story about a great ancestor, or a great giant or ancestor called Crapeful and his family. And they settled at Mount Muirhead and made an oven. Um, so this then is telling us that possibly, you know, it's related to the, the ground being hot or they were aware that, you know, volcanic activity is hot. But they were woken on a night, nighttime of a noisy bird they called the bullen. So from there, then they fled to Mount Shank where they thought they would be safe. But then one night again, um, there was the voice of this bullen or this bird occurred again. Now that could be some sort of precursory warning to the volcanic eruptions coming. It could be the steam coming out or... Um, it could be uh, related to sort of a pre-eruption uh, warning of an event. So from Mount Shank, when, when I guess an eruption occurred again, they moved to Mount Gambia and camped there for a long time. But the water came up from the bottom and put out their fire. So they made four more ovens, which relates to the four different, I guess, landforms we've got, these Mars today. Um, but each time the water came up. So this was recorded by a missionary, uh, Mrs. Smith, in, in 1880. So this was from uh, interactions with Indigenous Australians um, when she moved to Australia. So I think there's a number of things. One, one of the most interesting things for me from this story is that Mount Shank and Mount Gambia are both thought to have erupted around, you know, four and a half, five thousand years ago. And um, the paleomagnetism suggests that they were about 300 years apart from each other, but can't tell you which one came first. 
So I think gathering from this story, you know, you can make an inference that from at least the oral tradition, it indicates that Mount Shank um, erupted prior to Mount Gambia. So I think if you if you can take the information away from these, we can we can start to you know I guess improve our understanding of of the evolution of volcanic events in the country. And then so that's down in uh, South Australia, but also from the younger volcanic eruptions up in northeast Queensland, we also have um, a number of oral traditions recorded up there again. So the one I just wanted to highlight from here is uh, one from Lake Ichim or Yijim. And that's in the Atherton Tablelands. You can see it there. It's one of these mar volcano, explosive mar volcanoes. So the we don't have a the best date I can find on this is actually um, an oldest the oldest sediment in the actual lake, which has come out about nine uh, nine thousand years. So that's regarded as a minimum age. But um, I guess in, from papers I've read, it suggests that they they happened in the Holocene, so like in the last eleven thousand years or so. So pretty young by geological standard. And what the story and um, oral tradition uh, tells us is that there was open scrub in this area, not the forest or the rainforest that we see today. And that there were um, a group of people sitting around in huts um, in this area. And there was a group of old people that were looking after some recently initiated men. So one, one old man got up um, to go and look for food and told the initiated men to stay there. And now at this point, there's, um, there's a few different, I guess, versions of the very, a very similar story of this. So one of these stories um, the, where the old man then said it, it got unexpectedly dark and he knew from that that the men, the initiated men were in trouble. So he started to try and get back to the camp. When he got back to the camp, there was a cloud up in the sky and it was up high and it was getting yellower. And the wind was blowing strongly and a cold, cold wind was rising up. And then he saw water rushing and engulfing everything. So, and then it says that the, all the animals came running at that point and they were um, trying to escape the water and in part carried by the wind. And the old man cut and hit the ground to try and make it stop around the camp and through fire. But the water came up anyway and the people uh, perished. So from this, I think there's a number of things that you can, you know, from this eruption, there are a number of things that, well, that, sorry, from this story, there are a number of things that link to quite clearly to volcanic eruptions and the types of things that you'd expect, expect to see. Um, so I think there's a lot we can get from that. And that one interesting thing is that pollen analysis um, by Kershaw in 1970. So this, this myth was, or this oral tradition story was recorded uh, prior to this study in the 1970s. And there they did a pollen analysis and they showed that the, the rainforest uh, biota was less than 7,600 years old. So the, the reference to the open scrub in the oral tradition, you know, obviously um, is, um, corresponds or can um, complement the pollen analysis study that, that they got to confirm about the, the biota at the time. So I think there's a lot of things we can gain from um, oral traditions, there's a lot more work uh, to be done. It's obviously got uh, there's obviously challenges and, and limitations in terms of um, we can have situations where stories are adopted from other areas. So it's trying to understand, you know, there's stories of two volcanoes uh, fighting in one area and very nearby there's another story of two volcanoes fighting. So, and these, and two of those volcanoes, you know, are from eruptions that are thought to have occurred from scientific dating more than 200,000 years ago. So there probably is some sort of adoption, but it just shows that um, 
Aboriginal Australians were definitely on, in the landscape when eruptions occurred. And I think that's really important from a different viewpoint and a, I guess a connectivity to that volcanic activity that European settlers and when they arrived have just not had because it's not happened in, in the time frame that I guess literate um, history has been, been occurring. So we're going to switch, switch um, I guess, topics a little bit now and move on to the second one. So for this one, um, so we know that volcanoes have erupted in, in human occupation of Australia. Um, is it going to happen again? So the fields in the New Volcanic Province have been active for four and a half million. We know that some of these fields, so the one on the Victoria, there's um, a volcanic field on the Victoria, New South Wales border. We know that that, one's been, that one was active for 20 million years. So it's not particularly um, a long period of time, geologically speaking, so we could um, expect future eruptions to occur. And we also have um, geophysical evidence and a lot of the ANU group are working on those aspects that suggest there might be small degrees of little bits of melt down in the air in the new volcanic province that might be related to either past intrusions or, or future intrusions of melt. So I think we could definitely say you know, I think I would say we definitely expect one to happen. So then the question is, what can we learn about what it might look like and how much warning time we might have? And in terms of warning time, um, one way we can look at this with uh, volcanology and mineralogy is from these dark green chunks you can see in the rock here. And these are fragments of the Earth's upper mantle that have been brought to the surface um, in, in the black material around it, which is the basaltic material. So from these um, heavy, dense mantle xenoliths, we can get an idea um, that for the typical size you see, you know, these are dense fragments of the Earth's mantle. You're going to have to move pretty fast to actually be able to carry these without them settling out from, from the magma that's, that's moving towards the surface. So from looking at the, the size of the xenolith, I guess assuming a, a round shape, uh, looking at the conduit and the flow dynamics, um, calculations suggest that for a typical size analyst that we find in these areas in Northeast Queensland and South Australia, you're going to be moving from the upper mantle to the surface, or you have to move from the upper mantle to the surface in just a matter of a few days. So this would then actually correspond to your maximum warning time, because if you're moving from the upper mantle, you're probably not going to be starting to get the earthquakes at that point. You may not start to see earthquakes associated with any activity until it gets closer towards the surface. So I think this is a really key point, the fact that these volcanoes are bringing up, so it's not all the volcanoes, but many of the volcanoes bring up these mantle xenoliths and quite large ones suggest that we are going to be moving fast from the source to the surface. So we can look also in terms of, um, for the mineral, we can look at their shapes and we can look at their chemical zoning pattern. So here I've just got a selection of um, backscattered electron images from the scanning electron microscope or SEM. So some from the Atherton province and the New Volcanic province um, that I'm working on and that Rosa and um, Tom England are working on as well at the moment. So most of these images have come off in the last, well, some came off in the last few weeks, some came off in the last few months, so pretty, um, pretty new parts of the study we're doing. Um, but what you can see automatically is you can see the colour, the grayscale contrasts. So those grayscale contrasts that you can see so whether you've got the kind of rings here or whether you've got this lighter edge to this darker interior, these correspond to chemical contrast in the crystal. So in the same way that when a tree is growing, it records its environment in terms of precipitation, I guess, temperature, 
and you can use dendrochronology to like have a look at the past environment when the tree was growing. You can do the same with crystals in a melt. So crystals in a magma, as they're growing, they, they take on the conditions of their surroundings. So we can use these, I guess, uh, zoning patterns, chemical zoning patterns in crystals that we see to tell us something about the plumbing systems and their ascent pathways to the surface. So this one on the, on the left is a, an olivine xenocris. So um, xenocris just means a foreign fragment. So it's something that didn't, it didn't grow itself from the magma, but it's been picked up. So in this case, this is actually um, a mantle. A, so one of those xenoliths that you saw on the, on the past, a bit of fragment of the Earth's mantle. This is then a crystal that's been come out of that, um, that rock, that green rock that you saw. I just wanted to help, so also about the shapes of crystals. So if you see here, we've got quite different shapes to the last one, and we call these kind of um, skeletal, so skeletal olivines, and also dendritic, we've got some dendritic features in that, <clears throat> very small microlites in this vol volcanic glass. So we can also use these types of textures, because these are related to how much you cool a magma um, and how long it takes to cool that magma. So basically when you find skeletal and dendritic textures, it tends to indicate that you've had uh, larger amounts of cooling over faster time scales. So what we can do by combining information, the chemical information that we get from looking at these zoning patterns in some of these crystals and combine that with the textures and, and the shapes that we get from the, from the minerals within there, then we can look at everything from, imagine it's a xenocryst, we can pick that up in the mantle and then we can look at what's going on in the, in the magma or the volcanic glass that tells us about the shallow part of the surface. So what we can do by looking at the, the minerals and the mineral chemistry and the shapes and the morphology, we can then kind of map out the plumbing system from source to surface and see you know, what, what's going on in terms of conditions of temperature and pressure. I just wanted to share this one as well. So I think I've got some spectacular images from some of these Australian uh, volcanic rocks. This is another one from the Atherton uh, volcanic province and you can see these dendritic clinoperoxine super tiny microlites in there in this really I guess clear and fresh fresh glass and if you start looking at them for long enough you start to even see little people in there at times. So what do we do to get the actual time scale out of, of how fast the magma is moving from source to surface? So we use something called I guess diffusion chronology so imagine you have a crystal. So we'll start off the bottom down here. We have this crystal. It's one of the early formed crystals when it started to grow. And for example, it had a high magnesium content up here. Then it may have mixed with a composition that was different. So it may have come into either a, a reservoir or a chamber, or it might be a, this could have been a mantle xenocris that got plucked out and picked up by the melt. So this could then have ended up in the, in the magma. So it just you either you can have xenocris magma interaction or some sort of magma mixing. But where you get those kind of chemical temperature and pressure type contrasts, then you're going to grow a rim of different composition, which is what we've got down here. And um, you can see down here. So over time, then we have this big boundary here. So we've gone from, I guess, a homogeneous composition to a rim of different composition. And then over time, what happens is it tries to diffuse to find an equilibrium. So what we can do is use this gap with some, I guess, fancy modeling. You can use the gap in here and some assumptions 
you can work out the gap and the, uh, the time frame to go from where this profile would have, um, when it happened, so the mixing event or when the xenocris was picked up or that, that surface was exposed to the melt and to eruption time. So this is what it would look like um, if you started off, if you imagine this is going from the, the rim over here of the crystal into the interior um, towards the core over here of the crystal. And at some point we had some sort of mixing event or some um, interaction between a, a xenocrist and a melt. And that was our initial part. And then here it just shows you as time progresses, this curve gets shallower and shallower. So you can fit the model to that to work out, work out the time. So Rosa Didano, a postdoc here, has started to work on this for, I guess, two centers at least in the New Volcanic Province. So Mount Norat, and you can see all these bright colored grains in here. These are all um, parts of the mantle. So either mantle xenoliths, if it's multiple grains, or the xenocrest, if it's individual grains. So what she's starting to do is, um, I guess, do profiles, chemical profiles on the electron microprobe from going from the rim of these xenoliths to the interior. And then we can look for these profiles that are going to indicate our diffusion timescales. So this is where we're up to at the moment. So we've just got the starting to get the data off the microprobe. So the next step then is to try to start modeling and the diffusion timescales to see how long this has been sat within this kind of host um, basaltic rock, which would have been the, the magma as it was ascending to the surface. So the last part of this um, talk, I just want to focus a bit on what public's opinion is. So if we're going to respond to um, a volcanic hazard, we really need to know what the public, um, I guess, perception is of and awareness is of volcanic hazards and risk. And Australia, I think we can all, I guess, agree that Australia is, can be at risk from volcanic activity from overseas. You know, we've seen, I guess, cases of eruptions in Chile that have affected um, Melbourne or Sydney airspace. Um, we've also got, we're surrounded by volcanically active areas, so Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, New Zealand, Vanuatu, and some of these countries are capable of supervolcanic eruptions. So it's, it's possible that we could be at risk from um, an eruption outside Australia. But I also wanted to know what people think about eruption risk from inside Australia, so on the mainland. So I started to team up with some social scientists and in, I guess, November last year, got through all the ethics approval process and launched a quantitative anonymous survey with about 38 questions in there. We've had about 120 responses to date um, and I haven't really pushed the survey in the last six months. So that was pretty much um, most of last year we managed to get, um, well actually it was in a month or two, right? We managed to get that many responses. But I haven't really pushed it in the last few months because of the White Island eruption. There was kind of a sensitivity, you know, I know I know people in schools here where families were affected by that and they were quite sensitive to it. And also then we were um, under the bushfires and then now coronavirus. So, you know, trying to get people's perspective on, on volcanic hazard and risk. So we've got some responses which will be interesting to see prior to bushfires, after bushfires, um, and before White Island and after White Island. So we can have a look at that information, I guess, on a, on a more detailed level to see if it's affected people's um, opinions. But one thing, one comment here in the kind of general comment box at the end was if there was a volcanic eruption I would have no clue what to do where to go or who to ask and I think that's one thing that we should try to um, address anyway within the community that people do know where they should go to even if it's just um, an emergency services website. So 
I've just grabbed these um, diagrams off of um, Qualtrics. So some of the questions we asked them, we asked 38 questions. We, we captured a lot of uh, demographic info. So age, um, gender, we've got, um, you know, what level of earth science qualification they have, or um, we've got um, the general interest in earth science. And then we started to ask them just generally how concerned they are about risks from following hazards. So this was, most of this data was collected um, before January this year, there's been probably five, five since then. And you can see that I've just highlighted here, so this was a five point Likert scale, so they could, they could rank things how they, if they were concerned or not on a scale of five. But I've just highlighted the two end members here, so extremely concerned in red and not at all concerned in blue. And you can see that in terms of volcanic activity, which I've highlighted in that blue rectangle, um, over what's that close to 65% of people were not all concerned. So the least, uh, least concerned about volcanic activity. And you can see for the red ones, we've got most people concerned about climate change, um, drought, bushfires, housing affordability. So the things that you could imagine would normally be of concern to people in Australia. So Australia is at risk from, and this was asking people whether they agreed with this or not. So in terms of, um, I guess, what people thought they're most at risk from is again, the bushfires, flooding is basically most of the other um, hazards apart from tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides and volcanoes. So you can see that, <clears throat> again, people don't necessarily think that there's much risk um, from within Australia, but maybe a slightly more people thought there might be a risk from, they somewhat agree with and that there might be a risk from volcanic activity outside of Australia. And so asked, we asked them the question, when was the last eruption in mainland Australia to see what they um, thought about that? And I guess from the, the data we have on what, what background people have, their highest degree, their level of interest, whether they've done year 12 earth science, we can see that obviously, because we've distributed this survey at the moment, <clears throat> through our networks, we got a lot of scientists um, like filling in the survey. So there's two boxes here. One is that I'm not sure box. So a lot of people really not sure when the last eruption was. And then we have got people that recognized, I guess the correct timeframe for the last eruption. Um, but I haven't really gone into the data to see what background knowledge yet people had um, to, to guide that opinion. So in terms of preparedness, how well did people feel were prepared for dealing with volcanic eruptions? Well, nobody strongly agreed that we were prepared for dealing with them. And then there were quite a lot of people that just didn't really know whether we were prepared or not. And a lot of people that disagreed whether we were, that we were prepared. Do they know whether to follow the procedures um, if there was an emergency related to eruptions? Well, most people said they didn't. Um, and most people weren't aware of any preparedness, emergency management plans or warning systems for volcanic hazards in Australia. So this is the, I mean, this is the survey flyer. If you do want to pass it on to your family and friends, we're trying to get less scientists completing it. Um, yeah, then please pass on this um, slide when it goes to when the recorded versions posted, because it'd be great to get more people to complete the survey. Um, and one thing I just want to say here is, so in terms of level of preparedness, if there was going to be an eruption, or if you wanted to find out about 
volcanoes and you were living in Victoria where the new volcanic province has the majority of volcanic centers you'd probably end up likely end up here which is the Victorian emergency website and you can see they offer information on a range of hazards here so we've got fires floods storms earthquakes tsunamis um, thunderstorm asthma extreme heat um, but what they don't have is volcanic activity whether that's from outside or inside like what what to do or how to prepare you know it could be about uh, protecting from volcanic ash if it's something from external um, but what they do one thing that really struck me was if you go to tsunami and prepare for a tsunami it mentions that tsunamis can be generated by meteorite impacts and i just thought um, something's not quite right here so they mention on the website for victoria which hasn't which i believe has an active volcanic field um, that tsunamis might be generated by meteorite impacts but don't consider you know the potential of a, a volcanic eruption in a volcanically active area so what would be the impacts so this was a i guess an interesting concept that was put together in, in ray cass's 2017 kind of review paper of the new volcanic province and um, Joshua Van Atelou's PhD work identified or determined that the Mount Gambier eruption, so the last one in 5,000 years ago, had a volcanic explosivity index of four. So this is on the scale of zero to eight, where eight would be a super volcanic eruption and zero would be something like in Hawaii that you could walk away from like a, a gentle lava flow. So four is pretty significant. Um, and the Icelandic eruption, Eyjafjallajökull, in, in Europe that ground, I guess, most of the European airspace was also a VEI-4. So what uh, Ray and others did was to superimpose the ash cloud from the Eyjafjallajökull eruption onto Mount Gambier with prevailing, you know, normal prevailing wind conditions to see what might happen. So you can see from that, it's kind of an extensive um, ash cloud. There'd be ash on the ground or ash in the air that might travel even all the way to New Zealand. Um, what else might we expect if we if we see an eruption? So the Undara lava caves in the McBride province are about 190,000 years old, but they're 160 kilometers long, these lava, uh, lava flow. That makes it one of the longest Cenozoic um, lava flows on the planet. Second, I think it's third to two, two others, one in Argentina and one in, in the USA. So significant lava flows in, in, that, um, in the McBride province in the past. And it would probably end up looking something similar to what we saw in Hawaii in, in 2018. So what would the warning signs be? So close to the end now. So what would the warning signs be if we were going to see signs of an eruption? So I think we can use Hawaii as a good analogy for this too. So you could see possibly some small earthquakes, maybe minor up, uplift or subsidence, um, changes in the ground temperature or gas and steam uh, rising out. But if you think about moving back to the Xenolith study, so we're seeing timescales there um, from, a, from at least modeling the, the size and density of those Xenoliths and the settling out of them, that you're gonna have about two or three days, you could potentially have two or three days only notice. So I think it's really important to do a bit more um, work in terms of the petrography and, the, and direct analysis on, on certain particular centers across the fields to see what those ranging timescales are for how, how long it takes to get from a source to surface or from a stalling point, maybe at the moho to the surface. So um, if you want to find out more or learn more about intraplate volcanism in Australia, we're organizing um, an online symposium, Everybody's Welcome. It's gonna be on Tuesday, the, the 22nd of September. It's gonna be split into three themes. We're gonna try and use this opportunity to bring 
um, everyone together to look at a range of um, knowledge and approaches on interplate volcanism and its impact on the environment and on humans. So we're going to have a theme that's on deep beginnings, more focused on the source. The second one will be how we get from the source to the surface. And the third one will be once we're at the surface, kind of the impacts on there and also include aspects about education and, and outreach. So if you want any more information about that, please, please ask me or send me an email. And then the other little pitch, I guess and Megan already gave one for me, is just about what Misa. So yeah, if you want to find out more about the Women in Earth and Environmental Sciences Australasian Network, then I'm really happy to um, chat to chat to more about that, about how you might be able to get involved. And we are looking for a treasurer at the moment. So if anybody's interested in a treasury role, then um, please get in touch. And we just had um, this week, we had confirmation that um, a paper that we've prepared for um, it's the advances in geoscience journal for um, EGU journal um, and it's our paper entitled in Australasia gender is still on the agenda in geosciences so that's coming out soon so I'll be happy to share that with everyone too and just to leave you so I guess in summary um, here's a nice I guess video flyover of, of Mount Shank just to show you what incredible landscapes we have in Australia volcanic landscapes um, yeah and I think that we could all be doing a lot more um, to understand, I guess, volcanic and magmatic processes in Australia and then, you know, how that links to any future potential er eruption and combine it with a range of approaches, um, which I've tried to highlight in this talk today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Heather. I've released the, the uh, mute-unmute button, so people are probably furiously clapping. I can see a few symbols appearing of claps. Um, and... Um, let me just remind people that uh, to, uh, join the, to join the question session, please use the raise your hand button. Um, there was an interesting discussion in the chat that went on halfway through there and the last person to contribute was Rodri. So I don't know, Rodri, if you wanted to summarize the discussion as in the form of a question or comment, and then we'll pass on to people who have uh, um, who raised their hands. Uh, yeah, I can I can try my best. Um, so I think uh, Heather, first of all, thank you for a for a wonderful talk. It's nice to nice to see you again. Um, I think the discussion in the chat that Louis is referring to was there was a question on whether or not there was an age progression to the west in the newer volcanics, because it seems I think some of those South Australian volcanoes are a lot younger than those to the east. Uh, but from I think from my understanding, Ian McDougall, uh, Ray Cass, and others have said. That there's probably not an age progression there. Is that, do you understand that to be the same or have I got that wrong? Yeah, no, I understand the same. So yeah, I mean it looks apparent that there might be young, you know, the younger volcanism or the most recent volcanism is in the west. It might it might be the case. But the one of the problems I think we've got is that we just don't have enough dates of enough of the centers to to actually be able to determine that correctly. I think last time I was talking to Ray, he said there's only about 40, you know, of the 400 that we think we've got a really good um, age constraint on. So I guess we can do spatial analysis and you do geomorphology or something, but you know, until you've got a lot more uh, dates. And the one thing for the Kinrara up in northeast Queensland, I think when it was a potassium argon date, I don't remember the exact date, but I'm pretty sure it was something like 30,000 years for potassium argon. Then uh, Cohen and others re, you know, did argon argon dating and came up with an age of 7,000 plus or minus two. So most of the dates in the new volcanic province, I think, are coming from potassium argon dating too. So there's another question of, 
you know, if, if we start redating with the argon argon, are we going to get um, slightly different ages? But I, th I think my understanding too was that, that there is not, they cannot see at the moment that there's an age progression with the information available. Okay, thank you. There's a question from Michael who uh, typed it into the chat box, which is now scrolling off of where I can read it from, hang on, um, which said back when the area was volcanically more active, how often were there were the eruptions? Were people living at the time likely to see an eruption during their lifetimes, as is the case now in Hawaii or Indonesia, or was it something that could happen once every several generations and then people would learn about it from the oral history? Yeah, so I think that's another thing where it comes back to the having a better age constraint. So at least for Mount Gambier and Shank, the paleomagnetic, as far as I understand, suggests about 300 years apart. So there is, once you start, you know, trying to, I guess, get all the age dates, I mean, you see the variation you get in the age dates, so it is hard to know for sure. Um, but that one seems to be, for me, I guess, a, a point that even 300 years, you know, it's still it's still quite a few generations to pass on that knowledge down. You know, obviously it's, it's doable. You know, you think about uh, nursery rhymes or you know oral traditions that we have even in such a literate world today. You know, you can still you still make those things happen. Um, but in terms of the sporadic, the average frequency, if you think you've got 400 vents and it's been active for about four and a half million years, is about once every 12,000 years. But there was a study where they think it is in clusters. So you get periods of activity and then probably quite long lulls and then periods of activity. But even those periods of activity might still be, you know, in the order of thousands of years between hundreds or thousands of years between eruption. So I think it's something we still need to work on a lot. And that's one thing that we're probably going to bring up in the symposium is the need for, for better age constraints on a lot of the volcanic eruptions. But it also comes into play that, you know, if you're saying to the public, well, these, this, this volcanic field, it erupts once every 12,000 years. And they go, well, how long was the last one? And they say, okay, 5,000 years. So, and then everybody thinks, okay, well, I've got another 7,000 years till the next one. But it doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. And I think one thing in communicating those kind of frequencies to the public is making sure that they understand that it's just, it's just an average and we do get clusters and we can have active periods and it can go you know, dormant for, for thousands of years in between. Thank you. Zachary, looks like you had your hand up next if you want to go. Yeah, uh, thanks for the talk, Heather. It was really interesting. Um, I was just wondering, um, with your diffusion profiles across the olivine, um, did you notice any significant changes in the ratio of aluminium and silicon at all? So I haven't looked at that. So that was, so Rose has just got that off the probe. I've just, I'm about, so I'm working on Mount Shank. Rose is working on Mount Laura and Mount Norat. And then I'm also working on um, one in the Atherton field. So I haven't got as far as the probe yet to get the data off, but Rose has got the multi-elements. I don't remember what, the, I don't think the aluminium was a very, from memory, it wasn't a great trend. I mean, the calcium, iron, magnesium, um, phosphorus peaked at the rim, as you'd probably expect. So there were some changes, but I don't remember for, for the aluminium and silicon what it was doing. Sorry. I can have a look. I'll get Rosa to, uh, to let you know. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. We've got um, both. Uh, Anthony, did you want to ask your question in real life or shall I read it from the chat? And after that, Richard. Okay, I'm going to read it. Uh, <laughs> let's scroll off the screen again. Can you comment on the level of volatiles in the Australian interplate magmas and what they imply for volcanic hazard, Anthony Burnham? So I think there's, in terms of the hazard, 
so I guess there's two things there. One is in terms of the source. So they, I mean, I don't know what the exact percentage they think from maybe melt inclusion work or from, from other constraints on the volatile content of the source. And it's not really my, my scope of study in terms of looking at that aspect. So I'd you know, refer you to Steve Foley and Isra um, at Macquarie Uni to probably get a better insight on the volatiles in the source. Now we do see we do see evidence of the volatiles through the types of minerals that we find in terms of the hydrous minerals. Um, so, that, so there is evidence that it's there and it's a metasomatized type source, but I don't know the exact, um, you know, it'd be something that I don't even know if the people have done much in the way of melt inclusions to have a look at uh, potential volatile contents. But in terms of the eruption, eruption controls with volatiles, I guess, or water at shallow levels, you know, one thing that really controls eruption um, is that you could see on that new volcanic province map that a lot of the areas where you've got the limestone aquifers and the groundwater or surface water in the south part of the field and also over in Mount Gambia is where you're getting the more explosive water magma interactions and that's where you're creating those larger scale um, eruptions, explosive eruptions as opposed to effusive lava flows that you find in the areas where you don't have the aquifers. So volatiles or water in the shallow system actually, you know, in the ascent dynamics are very important and that might be a bigger control than, um, than volatiles in the source, which may, may have degassed by the time you get to the surface. But you do get liquid carbon dioxide uh, wells that they mine um, around the Mount Gambia province that have come back with, a, <clears throat> with an isotopic sing signature of the mantle as opposed to the crust. So there's clearly a lot of, um, I guess, decarbonation coming from somewhere but I yeah it's not really I'm not really sure in terms of what's going on in the source for that. Thank you so we've got Richard wanted to ask a question and there's another written one from Lee so we'll go with Richard first if you can unmute and then uh, and then the last one will probably be Lee and we'll pass on to the private chat after that okay. Hello Heather thanks very much. I, I, I will out myself as the ANU person who said uh, <laughs> Down Oak Street, and it was actually an interesting interaction with the press. Be careful what you say. But the, the, my response there was because they were asking me with respect to volcanic hazards in, for Australian cities and whether I think the person I recall the person actually knew about the new volcanic province. But when they came to Melbourne, could it happen in Melbourne? And I knew what Ray Cass had said. Uh, and in fact, when you walk around Melbourne, you can see it's built on stuff. Yeah. Uh, lava fields and my comment to him was I hope there really is one in Melbourne I'd sell tickets for the public to go look at it uh, kind of you know the volcano that at, at Los Angeles style but it, was, it was pretty much a flippant comment but it had a sort of basis I think in reality that there is a hazard, yeah, I, hazard I mean, all over Victoria and in South Australia yeah and I, and I I agree I agree completely it could happen I mean just because there's a city there it's not going to just stop been an eruption if it wants to erupt there right so i mean i guess i i would love to see one but somewhere where obviously there's not going to be much damage to people infrastructure lives um but it, i mean it would be amazing to see a lava flow i think uh, in Australia. Like but i did i did have a, a question of you your yeah. your survey mm -hmm. i could imagine if i lived in alice springs my concern about tsunami would be minimal yeah yeah well we've got the geographic so i've got i've got postcode I've definitely got postcode and I can't remember if we asked for suburb. I think we just went with postcode because of the typing issues. So it was going to be easier for them to just put in a number. So we will at once we've got enough. So I'm, I'm aiming for about 400, I think, completed surveys 
in order to have a, in theory, a statistical representation of the Australian public. Um, and I'm going to try and target through, to get regional, I need more regional. I've got obviously a lot of cities at the moment. I can see that from the postcodes. I have a lot of Sydney and I have a lot of Canberra. Um, just because Marina Costello very nicely distributed it to her fam family and friends <laughs> from GA. So we will be able to do kind of, once we've got more, I guess, information back or more surveys completed, be able to do those kind of analysis then of, you know, what age, what gender, what background in terms of knowledge, um, what level of qualification, where they live, um, when they filled it in, what time they, you know, what time in terms of the world's going on, they filled, that, filled in their opinion. So yeah, hopefully we'll be able to determine, you know, somebody living in the middle of Australia obviously is not going to be very concerned about a tsunami. Yeah, okay, very good. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we're getting towards the end. There was, Lee had, had a hand up and then if not, um, I'm going to pass on to Voon to probably uh, to, to take over and do the early career student um, meet and greet thing. Yeah. So let's just check. Yeah, just got a quick question for Heather. Mm -hmm. uh, thanks, Heather. That was an amazing talk. And uh, my question is, uh, what would you say was more likely as the next eruption mode? Would it be a Ma volcano like Mount Gambia or an effusive volcanic eruption? What, what, what do you think it might be? I think it's just going to be too hard, too hard to tell. Um, I think where that geophysical anomaly is, you know, where they suggest there's some degree of partial melt, um, either intrusions into the lower crust or somewhere, if it erupted there, then it might be more likely to be an effusive or, um, you know, scoria, strombolian style eruption. But um, judging on, I guess, the last ones at Mount Gambia and Mount Schenken, they had an aspect of phreatomagmatic, you know, mar aquifer interaction. I think, and we don't really have a spatial constraint on any pattern in time. It's just going to be too hard, too hard to tell. 